Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today a very special guest, somebody who I have been wanting to have on the show for quite some time now, and it is the one and only Dr. Reverend Darwin Gray. Darwin Gray is an ex-NFL football player. He is a church planter, a pastor, a teacher, a writer. He kind of does it all, and he planted and has grown one of the largest multi-ethnic churches in America. has a huge heart for ethnic reconciliation in the church today. I've learned so, so much from Derwin, and we lingered on that topic pretty much for, for pretty much the whole podcast, talking about all things related to ethnic and racial reconciliation in the church and so I'm super excited about this conversation. Um, I also want to let you know about a resource that we recently produced at the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, and that is Grace Truth 2.0, uh, five more conversations every thoughtful Christian should have about faith, sexuality, and gender. Uh, you're probably familiar with Grace Truth 1.0 if you've been listening to this podcast for uh, any number of uh, days, because I talk about it quite a bit. And now we have 2.0 that's out, and 2.0 is an additional five more conversations, so that now 1.0 and 2.0 constitute 10 conversations, conversations, chapters, discussion starters about faith, sexuality, and gender. It comes with videos. It comes with questions. It comes with reading material, extra podcasts, extra papers. If you want to engage the conversation with faith, sexuality, and gender with a group of people at your church uh, or with your small group, your Sunday school, or just a bunch of friends, and you want to have something to read and discuss and think through this very important issue, then I highly recommend checking out Grace Truth 1.0 and 2.0. You have to go to centerforfaith.com, click on the store link at the top, and we have a brand new store page. Our old store page was hideous. It was terrible. It was very difficult to navigate, and it was hard. We made it very hard to actually buy this stinking item, and now we alleviated uh, a lot of those problems, so there's very few hurdles that you have to jump over to purchase the Grace Truth material. So check us out, centerforfaith.com. Click on the store link and see if Grace Truth 1.0 and now 2.0 is a good fit for your small group Sunday school or group of friends to discuss this very important topic. Okay, let's get to Dr. The one and only Dr. Derwin Gray. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I am here with my friend from a distance, pastor, author, and former football player, Derwin Gray. Derwin is the pastor, well, pastor and uh, co-founder of Transformation Church out in, uh, that's in North Carolina, right? I know you got several campuses now. Yeah, um, so so our, our facility is in Indianland, South Carolina, which is basically a bedroom community of Charlotte. Yes, yeah, oh, South Carolina, South Carolina. And, we draw people from uh, North Carolina and South Carolina. Yeah. And it's what, what makes Transformation Church unique is it's, I, I believe, one of the largest, I'm going to say, intentionally multi-ethnic churches in, in the country. I mean, is that would that be a legitimate description of your church or? Yeah, um, I think so. From what people tell me that uh, track that that type of that type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, Derwin is the author of uh, four books, uh, Limit- Limitless Life, uh, Hero was his first one, Crazy Grace, and then High Definition Leader, Building Multi-Ethnic Churches in a multi- Multi-Ethnic World. I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about not just that book, but the whole idea of building multi-ethnic churches. I know this is a massive passion of yours. Um, it is It is of mine as well, and I always have to qualify that with, well, you know, I I, I often tell people if I wasn't doing the LGBT, sexuality, faith, gender conversation more than full time, if that didn't exist in my life, I think I would be giving my life to the multi-ethnic thing, but I'm super excited to have brothers like you doing the opposite, you know, like I think we resonate a lot of the sexuality, gender questions, but man, you're like, man, I'm diving into the multi-ethnic stuff. And I just, I'm so excited to have people like you doing this. And I think there's a growing, would you say there's a growing number of pastors, leaders, churches in the country that are engaging multi-ethnic ministries? Yeah. Um, I, I do believe that there is, um, statistically, I think over the last few years, I, I think it's like 13, percent of churches in the United States are now multi-ethnic, but that could be a little uh, misconstrued because sometimes congregations are just in transition. But let me start at the basics because a lot of times in this, in this conversation, people will say things, well, you just, you just need to preach the gospel. Where do you, where do you, where do you worry about this stuff? And, and let's, you know, why are we talking about race? And I often <laughs> understand where they're coming from. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll say, well, let's don't talk about race when we talk about the Bible or the gospel. So Jesus isn't Jewish. He's a, a Martian. Um, you know, um, Cornelius wasn't an Italian. He was from Jupiter. Uh, the Samaritan woman was like from somewhere in the Milky Way galaxy. And once they get the point, I'll come back and say, um, the gospel is a story of how God reconciles the human race comprised of different ethnicities to one another and to him through the redemptive liberating work of Jesus Christ. And then next I'll say, um, The entire New Testament, particularly Paul's letters, were written to uh, this new ethnicity called the church, which was comprised of Jews and Gentiles, on how do you get along together as an eschatological foretaste of what the new heavens and new earth is going to be about. And so uh, in order for me to preach the gospel, I have to understand the implications and what the gospel accomplishes, and the gospel accomplishes a new people of God, which are Jews and Gentiles. So in other words, God creates a new humanity where sexism, classism, and ethnocentrism is crucified. And what breaks my heart is that's hardly ever preached. Hmm. And so I sound like I'm making stuff up or I sound as though like, dude, what are you talking about? And I'm going, it's in the Bible. Like, like we have to really get rid of our, uh, uh, Western individualistic understanding and really go back to what was the goal of this Jewish Messiah. He was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that all the ethnos would be blessed. Mm -hmm. And the blessing is to be united to Christ as the new people of Christ. So um, the gospel is so much more powerful than Derwin gets his sins forgiven. Yeah, totally. Well, you, I mean, you see this, ex- I mean, it couldn't be more explicit in at least a couple paths. I mean, I think thematically, thematically, 
it's it's part of the fabric of the story of redemption. But even explicitly, like in, in uh, Galatians three eight, Paul says, "God preached the gospel before him." Preach the gospel, the euangelion beforehand to Abraham saying, and then he quotes Genesis 12, three. Now, any student of biblical theology or any first year Bible student knows that like the Abrahamic promises spoken to Abraham in Genesis 12, one to three, that's the backbone of the entire story of redemption. And in that, at the very end, it says in you, all the nations will be blessed. Paul says that is the gospel. That is in a, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir, but I'm preaching also to my audience. <laughs> that, that is an explicit statement about different ethnic groups being included and reconciled under God's covenant that began with Abraham. Am I not? I mean, this just seems like it's just there on the surface of the text. You don't have to dig very deep. No, no. But what's sad is you would be surprised at how many pastors with MDivs and doctorates that I've read that passage to, and they'll look at me and go, how have I never ever seen this? And it's been here in clear sight. And when you look at the beauty in which Paul writes in Galatians 3 that this good news in verses 28 and 29 shows what this good news community would look like and that uh, um, there's neither Jew nor Greek, meaning that ethnocentrism is crucified, that Jews and Greeks are to use our own language, uh, Mexicans, Hondurans, whites, Mm -hmm. blacks, whatever, Latino, Asian, um, we don't stop being who we are. We are redeemed and added to the beautiful tapestry of God's people. So we don't go and start being colorblind. We're color blessed. Usually the people who say let's be colorblind have never had their color be a disadvantage for them. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And and then Paul goes on to say uh, um, poor nor uh, or free nor slave, which is classism than male nor female, which is sexism. Why? Because verse 29, we're all children of Abraham. And and so fundamentally, it is a misunderstanding of the fullness of the gospel. But also, to be honest, it is also we have allowed ethnocentrism to dictate the terms in which how we Mm -hmm. preach the gospel. And the implications of it is still affecting us to this very day that I sound like I'm the crazy one when it would have been normative to the apostle Paul. Another passage for me that just leaps off the pages is uh, uh, Ephesians two, the second half, 11 to 22. And, and, you know, growing up in reform circles and in a really Bible centered gospel centered Christian context, man, we love, love Ephesians two, one to 10. You know, by grace, you have been saved. You have a human depravity in verses one to three. And I, and I kid you not, um, even when I took a class on Ephesians in seminary, I, I still remember thinking like, man, the first half of Ephesians two is so rich and theological. And then it kind of tails off after that. <laughs> Hmm. You talk about you talk about lenses, and then um, years later, when I started understanding the things we're talking about more and seeing it, kind of, kind of, I, you know, that aha moment. Like, how did I not see this before? Um, I was asked to preach a sermon on Ephesians. Uh, we're going through Ephesians, and that was assigned to eleven to twenty-two. And uh, yeah, that was kind of my coming out moment. It was years ago at Cornerstone Church, where Francis Chan was a pastor, and um, and I preached on that. And I really hit the ethno ethnic reconciliation pretty hard. Um, And, you know, I was surprised. That's a pretty, 
pretty white middle class standard evangelical church and it was pretty well received and i even looking back i said some things that were you know when you first discover something you kind of <laughs> are maybe a little too much you know and uh, i got pushed back i got the emails but not you know i was like man i'm surprised that how many people were saying thank you for saying that i've been i've been feeling that and other people were like man i never thought about that but it's clear in the text that the yeah. cross of christ was designed to reconcile us vertically to God, one to 10 and horizontally to each other, but not just to each other, but each other meaning specifically ethnic groups coming together in, in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as you know, when, when, when we interpret the Bible, it, it's uh it's this beautiful thread. And so often, you know, Ephesians two, eight, nine, we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, not by works, least we should boast for it is a gift of God in verse 10 in him where God's artwork, uh, 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 um, we, we are God's artwork created yeah. to do good works that God has prepared for in advance. Well, as I interpret that text, because of God's grace vertically, yeah, the good works we've been prepared for in advance is actually verses 11 through 22. Mm -hmm. And when you look at those verses in verse 12, you see Gentiles were separated from the covenant. Verse 13, the blood of Christ brought those who are far away near. Verse 14, Christ is our peace. Verse 15, he tore down the dividing wall. Verse 16, through his body on the cross, we're reconciled. Verse 17 and 18, we have access to the Father. Verses uh, uh, 19 through 21, we're God's new temple, his new yeah. dwelling. And I'm like, how was yeah. I not taught this in my masters? And, yeah. and how is this so strange to understand that just as a cross has a vertical beam, yeah. there's a horizontal beam. Yeah. And so intrinsic to the work of Christ was the formation of Christ's community. And, right. and, and so unfortunately, we have allowed our culture, uh, racism and ethnocentrism to shape us more than the gospel. And so what I'll say to folks all the time is that my in Christness is more important than my first birth. And by the way, I'm, I'm 75% uh, like Congolese Ivory Coast, but I'm also yeah. nearly 25% European. Huh. <laughs> but the United States of America would never allow me to claim that 25% European even though my DNA tells the story, because in the 1600s in Virginia, it was said if you had one eighth of black uh, of, of black blood in you, yeah. you were considered black. And, and so all of that still cascades and permeates us. And so um, a lot of times people say they're gospel centered and they're really not because gospel centeredness means that my ethnicity has now been transformed into the ethnicity of the new people of God or the church. Yeah. Even, even, even the word Christian, um, Preston, as you know, is only used three times in the New Testament. The first time it's used is at the multi-ethnic church at Antioch. Antioch so yeah, yeah. In the ancient world, as, as you know, one's ethnicity was determined by their religious practices, not the color of their skin. And so yeah. you had Jews and you had Gentiles. The Gentiles were no longer heathens. The Jews now said that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah and the Gentiles and non-Jews were, were saying, I mean, the Gentiles and Jews were, were saying, well, what should we call this new community? They called them a new race of people called 
Christian. So the term Christian denotes a new ethnicity of people. Like we can legitimately biblically say Christian unless we understand that Jews and Gentiles became a new people mm-hmm. where there was an equality in Christ. And that was now their ethnic badge was in Christness. Well, it's fascinating. You take the two epistles, two books of the Bible that are, are, are the main sources of kind of the gospel and and justification by faith and all these heavy, heavy reform theological themes, Romans and Galatians, both books, you cannot understand those, but those books wouldn't even exist were it not for this underlying, not even underlying theme, but like main fabric throughout both those books of Jew Gentile coming together in, in Christ that my eyes were open to that years ago. I was like, again, how did I, how did I miss that Ephesians or, or Romans two and three and four and, you know, uh, and then the nine and 11 and even 14 and 15 and like all throughout the book, Paul is adamantly concerned of bringing Jew Gentile together. Um, yeah, told to, to, you know, I, I, um, you know, it's like the lights turn on and then you see how a lot of these problems can emerge, but just taking a step back. So just like you, you know, I was raised on Calvin's instit- inst- institutes. Yeah. And so I read Romans and then as I began to learn the tools myself, I, re- 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 I re- realized why Paul wrote the book. Romans 15, 6 through 8 tells us why. That, you know, in one accordance and harmony for you guys to get along, which was yeah. Jews and Gentiles. And how do we know? Because verses 8 through 13, it talks about Christ being the servant of the uncircumcised. And the first two chapters of the book of Romans is all Jews, Gentiles, Jews, Gentiles, even Romans three, like we're quick to go to Romans three twenty three. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Romans three twenty two talks about yeah. we are the righteousness of God, both Jews and Gentiles, that yeah. justification is not just vertical. Yeah. And we yeah. are, incorporated into the very righteousness of the Messiah. His covenantal faithfulness is ours. His righteousness is imputed to us because we're in him, not just vertically, but horizontally. So now I can look at the other on equal terms because they're in Christ. Imagine if Jonathan Edwards would have known that. I don't think he would have owned slaves. (laughs) Now, 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 like like I am so tired of white theologians of the past getting a pass on their racism. Well, they were men of the time. Well, John Wesley was an abolitionist. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was in that time. Like, it's amazing how we continue to have the privilege to give people a pass on on white supremacy and racism. That if we understood that justification said, Preston and I Mm -hmm. are equally righteous because we are clothed in Christ. Mm-hmm. Therefore, my love of him is in direct proportion to God's love of me. And so, so much of what we're dealing with is how do people get along? Vertical reconciliation is the beginning to fuel horizontal reconciliation, and we have yeah. unity. Do, do people give Edwards a free pass? They try to, like, downplay it or whatever? Oh, totally. I mean. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, maybe, maybe probably in Boise, you know, the Mormons probably don't know who Jonathan uh, Edwards <laughs> is, but, 
you know, but here in the South and a lot of my uh, reform friends, it's, yeah. well, you know, it was a, he was a sign of his times. Well, why can't James Cone then be a sign of his times? Right. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's like, well, you know, Martin Luther King, you know, he, he was a heretic. Well, is, isn't owning slaves like a heresy yeah. as well? But anyway, I mean, let's, I, let's move I, on I, to something else. Well, I understand. I mean, with the, with the Edwards thing, I, I understand trying to understand the times to where you can see where somebody would wrong, wrongfully and very in a disgusting way buy into that. But that's different. That's different from kind of downplaying it. You know, I, I cannot downplay it and say, I don't know. You know, like, I, I just wonder if there's a if there's a, a middle way there where you can. Like him owning slaves then, do you see it any different than owning slaves today? I'm not making that argument. I'm no, just thinking like, out loud. <laughs> like any time you own slaves, it is sin for all yeah. time and all eternity. And as you know, you've, you've done such a great work in understanding language and culture. Yeah. Slavery of biblical times is not slavery of what we're yeah, experiencing yeah. back then. Or, or even now. My whole premise of bringing that up is we have to get back to not just what Luther and Calvin said. Uh, my quote-unquote expertise or doctoral work is in Second Temple uh, uh, um, Jewish understanding. Mm-hmm. And so that has freed me up so much to see beyond a Eurocentric perspective to, wow, like, like this was a Jewish movement that at the beginning Getting the followers of the Messiah were considered another segment of the Jews. You you had the Essenes and 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 you had the Zealots and the Sadducees and yeah. the Pharisees. Now you got this other group called the Christians. Then eventually yeah. their practices morphed and shaped, but they had Gentiles or Gonim who were equally a part of it. And yeah. there was something yeah. beautiful and transformative about this movement, so much so that they were classified as the third race. Right, right. Isn't that crazy? You, you. So you mentioned you did your doctoral work under Scott McKnight, right? And just recently yes. completed that. I, yeah. what, what was what was your focus on? So I didn't realize it was on Second Temple Judaism. What was yeah, your thesis? Yeah. So um, the the doctoral work is, is called uh, um, New Testament and context. So what mm. what was the context of first century Second Temple Jewish understanding? So we looked at what was the Jewish world. We looked at Jesus. We looked at Paul. We looked at the church. And so my emphasis, my thesis was multi-ethnic churches are the primary sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Oh, wow. Gosh. So, yeah, this is, this is not just an interest of yours or a pastoral interest. This is like your the subject of your doctoral yeah, thesis. So, 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 yeah. so this is, so Transformation Church is the overflow of a conviction mm. that God told Abraham, through you, all the nations would be blessed. And Jesus is the one who comes to fulfill that covenant to create this new humanity. But this new humanity who's being sanctified on this new exodus is Mm -hmm. painting a portrait of what the human condition is supposed to be. And that final picture looks like every nation, tribe, and tongue adoring and worshiping Jesus. So what's happening in the future, God wants us to practice in the present. And so what yeah. I say is not only do we get justification and reconciliation and expiation and propitiation and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, but we also get a new family. And this family is counter 
cultural and it's also tutor and teacher to the world. Hmm. That's so good. Is this, I mean, high definition, high HD leader, your, your latest book. Is that your latest book? That's your latest book. Right? Yes. You haven't written one since then. Yeah. So I mean, that, 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 that's, that captures a lot of that on a real practical way. Do you have another, are, your thesis, have you published that? Or are you going to do something? No, on a, on a I haven't, I haven't published my thesis yet. So the high definition leader, uh, building multi-ethnic churches in a multi-ethnic world will give you the essence of it. My yeah. thesis has built upon that, and I've just been too tired to pursue <laughs> the type of, uh, of yeah. publishing at this time. But, but Pre- Preston, you know, th- this is this is what I want to give my life to. Like, like I'm 47 years old. I've done the conference thing. I've written four books, and I'm just saying that that I believe that there's more that Jesus wants to do. And I'm not going to sell my soul to, uh, to, uh, to kiddie pool theology. I'm not going to sell my soul to uh, individualistic messages. Like Jesus gave his life so that his ministry and mission could fill this earth. And, Mm. and, 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 you know, we all think our time is the most important time ever. Right. But man, what a great time for the church. This is what it looks like. Like, so for a, so for a guy like me, right? So so I'm not I'm not uh, um, typical Pentecostal charismatic black. I'm 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 not old school black, but obviously you know I'm not uh, white evangelicalism. And so it's like you're you're in this space and you're going, oh my gosh, is there anybody else? Yeah. Do you feel like that? Oh man, I feel like that just about every day. Really? Oh man, it's having conversations like this yeah. is very rare. Oh my gosh. I mean, you seem like the most logical, sane, like, oh, dude, I would give anything for you to be my pastor. <laughs> like, well, well wow, so, so, yeah. so, so our, our church is, is beautiful. Yeah. It's healthy. It's thriving and it's growing. And it's, I mean, God is doing some incredible things, but outside of that, yeah, talking to other pastors, you know, particularly, so my African-American friends, they're like, Listen, I understand what you're saying, but bro, 81% of white evangelicals voted for immoral man. I mean, oh my yeah. gosh, when Bill Clinton was president, like like this new guy makes Clinton look like a boy scout. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so my so my black friends are like, just screw it. Like, why should we go for this self-harm and hurt anymore? Like, like, does anyone care that we've been saying for years that police profiling and, and yeah. brutality is like normative and no one wanted to listen? Yeah. But then I'll talk to my white pastor friends and like, well, Derwin, man, you're you're moving too fast. And I'm like, yeah, that's easy for you to say. That's what they told King. That's what the white pastors told King back in yeah. the 60s. Yeah. Like, like this is like, good, whatever, but give it time. Give it time. He's yeah, like, like, that's why like, I write the loaded. Yeah. yeah. And, but, but also here's another thing though, money. <laughs> be, be, because, you know, like I've been told by a black person that I'm racist against blacks because I'm not pro-black enough. I've been told that I'm racist against whites because of issues that I've brought up that we need to disciple. 
You know, it's like, well, you know, it's not white folks fault for it. I'm like, who said that, bro? I'm just saying there's a reason why NFL players yeah. are taking a knee and it's not to dishonor yeah. the flag. It's so we can live up to what the flag stands for, yeah. which is justice and liberty for all. That's why yeah. our great soldiers uh, um, fight and give their lives for justice and liberty for all. And in the words of Forrest Gump, I'm not a smart man, Janai. <laughs> <laughs> all, all. And so, and, and so yeah. it, 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 it hurts my heart when Christians will say, well, what are these black players going to do about this problem? And I'm oh, like, well, on. aren't we Americans? Isn't it our problem? Like, yeah. Yeah. like, isn't it, sh- shouldn't it be our problem and not just their pr- problem or, well, they're rich. What's their pr- problem? Yeah. Those who are powerful speak for those who have no power. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, I think the enemy is so busy and has used political rhetoric on the right and the left that they've discipled much better than the church has. Yeah. Oh man. I just had a, do you know, Scott Sauls? I just had Scott Sauls on the podcast talking about yeah. the, yeah, how, and he, and he would see one of the greatest damages to evangelicalism has been the politicalization where we, he even said something that's really simple, but so true and brilliant that, we, we oftentimes we find more allegiance to people of our same political persuasion that don't share our faith rather than people who share our faith, but have different political allegiances Yeah, <laughs> where, where, where we're so invested into our political interests well, that that's unhelpful for the gospel. Well, and if you look at the ethnic segregation of the church, it's basically the same as political lines. Yeah. And so proximity yeah. breeds intimacy. Mm. Like one of the beautiful things about having a multi-ethnic church is we get to hear each other's stories. Mm-hmm. Like we, like empathy has uh, happens as a result of being uh, and doing life with the other. Mm. Yeah. And uh, you, you know, like, so like at our church, like literally you could have someone wearing a make America great hat again next to someone with a shirt that says black lives matter. Really? Oh yeah, yeah. That's it, that's how it should be, man. That, yeah, because <laughs> each one has their story. I mean, even like I, I'm, I'm not. As my audience knows, I say this every podcast. I am not a Trump Trump fan at all. But true diversity is going to also listen to the conservative who said, "Okay, now why did you 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 know this guy's just morally bankrupt? You know he's got the maturity of a six year old. Like that's just not <laughs> unclear to the world. Why why would you? And you know sometimes people have a mixture of good and bad reasons for yeah. that. But, but what agree or disagree, they're still welcome at the table too. And, and vice versa, the Trump dude should say the same thing about the black lives matter person. Say, I want to hear your story. What was it like growing up when you had the talk that us white people don't even know about, you know, and what's it like when you get pulled over by the car? I just talked to a black pastor friend in town. This is a while ago, actually. And he, he, he said, Preston, when I, when those lights, he goes, I'm a man of the cloth. I, I wear my, uh, you know, suit and tie, drive a nice car, but I'm black in, in Idaho. And when those lights go on behind me, which happens quite a bit, I'm like, I've never been pulled over. And he's getting pulled over all the time. Let me tell you emotionally what happens inside yeah. of me. I'm a Christian. I've never, I don't swear. I don't drink. I don't, I mean, I, I don't, I think I'm a pretty good person. And I, my heart starts going like this could go south. Like I, every time that it could be a ticket, could be a broken taillight. The cop could be black for all I know, but my heart starts going and I, I start 
And I'm, I'm like, I don't know what that feels like, man. When those lights go on, I'm like, you know, I'm thinking like, I'm going to tell this cop off. Like, I'm not doing anything right. You know, I, I could be cocky. And he's like, oh, I, no, I, being cocky could be the death of me. I'm like being co- cocky for me could just whatever, you know, he may slap a ticket on me, but I, I don't have that same experience of what it feels like to get pulled over. Yeah. Anyway, I, <laughs> no, no, you're right. We, we, uh, so my, my wife is from Western Montana. And so we, we just love being out West and that's right. A few years ago, uh, we were we were driving from the airport, and we saw that a police officer pulled over a white guy, and the white guy had his finger in his face and was just wearing a police officer out. And I was just stunned and silent, going, "Oh my gosh!" Like that would that that would never be a thought. Yeah. Um. The one of one of one of one of one of the saddest things I've ever had to do. Uh, was uh, myself and three young guys that were part of our church and my son, we got pulled over. I had got done speaking um, for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes at a college. It was about 1030 at night. We, weren't, we were not speeding, and a police officer got behind us, turned on his high beams for a mile, hmm. and pulled us over. And as he's walking to the car, the saddest thing is I said, son, put your hands on the back seat of the driver. Don't move. Don't grab anything. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. No, sir. And I told everybody, roll your window down to the driver and everybody put their hands on the dash. Wow. And, um, you know, and the police officer has to do his job because there are dangerous people in the world. I mean, right. we respect our police. Uh, we partner with our police. We've gotten awards from the police department in Charlotte. But the reality is, uh, to use one of those awesome reform words, total depravity does not skip policemen. Right. <laughs> you know, just right. because you've never been harassed doesn't mean that there's others who haven't been harass and policing right. is a hard job and what i say is to be a police officer you have to be incredibly emotionally stable um because there's so much pressure and so whoever has the highest authority needs to have the highest accountability and emotional intelligence to be able to do such an important job but the reality is is if we don't talk about those things in church and understanding discipleship and uh, empathy goes a long, long way. Um, mm. So, so you, you know, those are some of the things that, that we're working on. And before you get an email saying, well, what does he think about all the killing in Chicago? Um, I think it's terrible. Um, I, I think any form of murder and killing is terrible. The gun violence is, is, is incredibly terrible. But what I will say is, Policemen are to protect and to serve. We expect gang members to act as such, but policemen are to protect and to serve, and you're innocent until proven guilty. Right, right. So it's not, it's not saying the only problem in this discussion are white cops. There's multiple problems, but to sort of whitewash one because, well, they're doing it worse, or there's a worse problem in Chicago – let's not ignore either of them. Let's deal with them all. And each one has its own kind of systemic issues going on that need to be unraveled. And um, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. And last I checked, Jesus 
in the Gospel of Luke, verses four, uh, chapter 4 and 13 on down, talks about this gospel of setting the captives free, giving sight to the blind. Uh, his messianic mandate uh, seems to be kingdom bringing to earth. What do you think about the recent buzz, at least on social media, on is social justice part of the gospel? I think John MacArthur <laughs> stirred some stuff up. I, I haven't actually uh, pieced the whole, all the pieces together. Is this something new that kind of flared up? Is uh, it, is this, um, or what? I mean, it's always kind of been a discussion, but I feel like there's been a flare up recently, right? Am I, am I yeah, right about that? I, I, I try not to. I'm not even going to bring the person's up name who is. <laughs> talking about, I don't really pay much attention to them, but, but what, I, but what I will say is this, and, and we have to go back to the Bible. Yeah. So when Jesus said, Shema Israel, Adonai Eleheno Adonai Chad, listen, Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. So Jesus took the Hebrew Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and he added Leviticus chapter 19, verses 8 through 19. So to love your neighbor as you love yourself to a Jewish understanding fleshes out in Leviticus chapter 19, 8 through 19. That's what love looks like. Mm -hmm. Love looks like not cheating. Um financially like love looks like saying wells fargo get your house in order stop making fake bank accounts love looks like saying immigrants matter like immigrants mattered so much to god that the nation of israel was taught don't glean all your fields because when the immigrant or foreigner comes through they're going to be able to collect food and go what kind of god is this that people leave food for the immigrant yeah. Like if people really want to be serious, go look what Leviticus 19, eight through 19 looks like. So when Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself, love is justice in public. So I don't care what term you give it, that the gospel has social implications. Only those in positions of privilege can focus on a gospel that simply yeah. sends you to, to heaven instead of a gospel that brings heaven to earth. And, and here's another thing, since I'm on this rant, and I know you've done some work in this uh, realm, um, evangelicals are so concerned about works, 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 works. Martin Luther did a lot of things that were right, but here's one of the things that he did wrong. He took works as his existential anxiety of not being able to live up to, to the Ten Commandments. So therefore, um, um, justification is simply um, Jesus made me righteous because I couldn't be righteous in my own works. Mm-hmm. Whereas what I would say is works were Jewish ethnic badges that separated Jews from Gentiles. That the whole argument of Romans and Galatians was you Gentiles have to become Jews, so you need to do these works such as kosher, Sabbath, uh, um, Torah, and Paul is going, no, Jesus now is the ethnic badge. And if you want to do Torah, great, but just know that your performance is not what saves you. What saves you is the work of Christ, that he's faithful to the covenant on our behalf. And and, and so um, I would say that we really, 
let me let me let me stop there and get your perspective because you've actually no, no. worked well, than I have on no, that. No, you, you sound like a Scott McKnight disciple. <laughs> That's a compliment. No, that, that uh, th- so the backdrop of Paul's idea of justification by faith. I would say I would affirm everything you're saying. I wouldn't. I would want to. My only twist on that is these ethnic bad. It's not like ethnic badges and not works righteousness it's ethnic badges as works righteousness if you will whatever yes some people some people said it's he's not even talking about works righteousness he's talking about ethnicity i'm like well it's kind of a both and it it is it is that that what and and paul addresses this in romans 4 it's like just because you're ethnically jewish and as you know what made a person a jew was not their skin color it was i'm circumcised i follow the torah and i do all these things yeah and so your ethnic, your ethnicity is not your righteousness. Right. Christ is your righteousness. Right. And that, and, and in the Jewish first century world, they would build these walls of ethnic things the Gentile proselyte would have to check off on. And so when Paul tore down that wall and says, no, it's just by faith, he doesn't have the, the backdrop of justification by faith is not some abstract notion of works righteousness. It is specifically ethnocentric worth works righteousness. And I, this yeah. is where I think, yeah, yeah Tom Wright and uh, Scott McKnight and James Dunn have done a, a great job kind of filling in the, they've, 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 they've made it a high definition discussion really. And in, in these, which is exactly what justification by faith was in first. Yeah. Time. And, and, and one of, one of, one of the beautiful grace gifts for me is not growing up in the church. Um, and I just kind of like read the Bible, right? And I didn't even know that I was even moving towards understanding that. Like, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even know who N.T. Wright was. Yeah. I didn't know who Scott McKnight was. Didn't know who Jimmy Dunn was. And so it, it was, it was like this convergence of going, "Oh my gosh, hmm. if the church knew this, it would change things." Because it's kind of like taking a big lump of clay and sticking it in a square. Uh, uh, um, deal and going, look, everything's square versus going, no, what we put it into shape what it become. Now, if we just take that shape away and go, Paul is talking about this covenant that God made with Abraham and Jesus fulfills it to make a new people. And these people are redeemed, justified, reconciled, expiation, propitiation, filled and sealed with the spirit. I'm like, it was like my head exploded, like, okay, there's so much more, and I want to be a part of that. So you didn't grow up in the church. You, now you went to you went to Brigham Young, right? Did you I grow up LDS BYU, or man. what was what, what's your BYU connection? Did they just give you good scholarship or? Yeah. So 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 I grew up in a in a household that had an inkling of Jehovah Witness background, which basically meant Jesus was not God, the Trinity is not true. And that was it. We didn't pray. We didn't go to Kingdom Hall. Lots of immorality, drug addiction. Oh, wow just brokenness. Football was my God. And the best scholarship offer I had, I'm thinking purely as a secular person, right? And I'm going, okay, Brigham Young, they're on ESPN a lot. Lavelle Edwards was a Hall of Fame coach. In 89, they were five years off a national championship. And I'm like, Mm. they're on ESPN every week. Like, why would I not go to BYU? Like, that's I didn't didn't know they're that big. Because the, uh, the other offers I had was Kansas State, and TCU. So I knew BYU would give me a world-class degree and I knew Mm -hmm. I could play early. 
And so that's why I went to BYU. And so uh, at that time, you don't, have, you don't have to be Mormon to go there. You don't have to be Mormon. No. to. Mm-hmm. Okay. About 98% of the school is Mormon, right. but you have to take 15 hours of religion classes from a Mormon perspective. Okay. And I just remember that some of the things were kind of weird. And there was like this, this, this curse of Cain where black people couldn't hold the uh, Melchizedek priesthood that got lifted, but nobody really wanted to talk about it. Hmm. Um, but I was never into it. Right? It was. Were, like, were you sitting? Were you sitting in the front row of that class? <laughs> uh, I got some questions. Uh, professor, actually, I got some questions. I I actually walked out of class uh, <laughs> when we discussed that, and um, I said, "My black skin is not a curse," and I walked out of class. But the professor was huh. very gracious, and he and I met and talked. Mm. Um, but that was one of the re- reasons why I didn't take Mormonism seriously at that time. Mm. Also met my wife there who was there on a track team and she was non Mormon as well, but oh, really? several members of her family is LDS. So for my wife and I both, uh, we were basically pagans. Um, I don't know if we would consider ourselves postmodern, like truth was relative, but we wasn't intellectual about, about it. Like we were, pursuing the American dream. And we ended up getting married in college, which I'm thankful for the Mormon influence because there was no, you know, you live with someone and shack up. It's like you get married. So I was 20, like when we got married. Oh, wow. No way. Yeah. And so we've been married for 26 years now. And um, yeah, so BYU was a great experience. It taught me how to get along culturally uh, it gave me an incredible love for the West. I mean, I love Utah, Idaho. Mon- really? It's absolutely yeah. gorgeous. How, I, so here's a question. Do you feel uh, like that area of the country is racist? Like, do you feel out of place when you're there as a black guy? I mean, or is it, are people pretty cool or do you? Yeah. So <clears throat> the, uh, I felt more racism in Indiana. Okay. Um, there are certain places in the Southeast, but out West, because you have the Polynesian influence, it's, it's just different. Like I, it, yeah. it, um, like you don't feel the same type of visceralness. Uh, yeah. Now, now what I will say is the racism I felt in Indiana was from my black teammates with the Colts because my wife was white. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 So I've encountered more structural racism because it's a white dominated society, but personal racism the most was for my black teammates. Now, when my wife and I got married, her stepdad didn't want me to marry her because I was black and my grandmother didn't want her to marry me because she was white. But by (laughs) the maturity of our relationship, Mm -hmm. her stepdad became one of my best friends. And that, that man wow. was so proud of me. Like he was so yeah, proud wow. of me and uh, you know, he, he apologized and you know, you're a man of character. I'm honored. My daughter uh, is married to you. And I mean, that man was so proud of me that on vacations when we would go, go there, I couldn't rest because he was introducing me to everybody. Wow. Was, what was, a cool was, my son, he's a pastor. He's got a master's degree. He'll help you. And um <laughs> It, it, it was it was truly proximity breeds intimacy, and the mm. same thing. My grandmother, who grew up, you know, in Jim Crow, Texas, 
she's carrying this baggage and like, why are you marrying this white girl? Because she mm. took her experiences and then she went on to love my wife. Mm. Um, wow. and, and so that's, that's the power of the gospel, but I wouldn't change anything about going to BYU. It was a great cultural experience. Some of my best friends, coach Edwards who passed away, a uh, great man, um, my wife and I were married by the assistant athletic director at BYU. He was a Mormon. Um, so, uh, the Lord has been incredibly gracious to us. You got drafted out of BYU. How many years did you play in the NFL? I played six seasons in the NFL, five with the Colts mm-hmm. and, uh, one season with the Panthers. Okay. What did you retire? Like, why'd you stop or why did you, you, you know what? Uh, I get that question a, a, a lot. Well, First of all, to continue playing, you got to be really good because it is the most competitive thing you will ever do. Mm-hmm. You know, so the position I played, there are basically four of those on every team. There's 32 teams. So out of 7 billion people on the world, there's 120 something jobs for what I did. Yeah. So look yeah. at those odds. Um, going into my sixth year, um, as I began to grow in Christ, I just sensed it was time for me to, to move on. Hmm. but I didn't know what to, because I was a compulsive stutterer and I had no, I no desire to preach or to teach or to write books. I was a, I stuttered. Really? um, It's uh, gone now, apparently. Well, I still stutter, but the Lord has helped me tremendously. And so um, I was invited to speak at an FCA thing. And I mean, I remember praying and crying and, like, God, send somebody else that can at least talk. Like, I'll pay for it. Hmm. And I just I just sense the Lord saying, if I can raise Christ from the dead, I can loosen your tongue to talk. Yeah. We can just, you can just say you're speaking in tongues and you'd flourish in Pentecostal oh, dude, circles, the, right? Yeah. Hey, the Pentecostals would go crazy. They, they don't, you don't stutter, man. You got, the, you got the Holy Ghost inside of you, man. No, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, wow. Yeah. Hey, what do you think? I, so I haven't looked into This is way off the topic, but not really, uh, the whole concussion debate in NFL and stuff. I never saw the movie actually yeah. with Will Smith, but yeah. is it Will Smith? Uh, but yeah, yeah what's yeah. that all about? Is that, is that a legitimate thing? Do you think football is, is covering up some, <laughs> some stuff or what? Okay. So let me throw out a few things here. Okay. I'm 47 years old. I've just finished my doctorate. I've written books. There's a lot of guys who played in the NFL a lot longer than me who are healthy and they're doing great. Okay. Mm -hmm. There are some guys who do have problems. Okay. Now, when you look at the initial concussion survey or or, or study, it was 110, 11 uh, brains of former NFL players and all 1011 showed signs of CTE. Okay. So the sample was only with people or players who showed signs that they had CTE. It wasn't a pure sample of just all these NFL players. So it would be like me saying, I'm going to get 111 people and I'm going to x-ray their right arm because all of them have had fractures to their right arms. So therefore, therefore, when you x-ray the bones, what what do you find? A fracture. So you took these 111 players and 110 had signs of CTE, but it wasn't a big sample of none guys who didn't show signs. So number two, drug use 
causes CTE. Uh. Epilepsy causes CTE. And there are a lot of players who've played who have no CTE when they die. Okay, so those are the facts. Here's another fact. If you run into people at high rates of speed with your head, you're probably going to have some problems. Right. Number three, did the NFL during the 70s and 80s cover up the damage that concussions can, can cause? I believe they did. Okay. That's why there's lawsuits. Now in every NFL locker room, there are big signs that talk about what concussions can do long-term. For me, am I going to play if I still could knowing that? Absolutely 100%. Does my son play? Absolutely 100%. Hmm. So um, football is a very, very violent sport. But you don't use your head to tackle, you use your shoulders. And so I believe the sport is moving in a positive trend to alleviate that. And the concussion protocols are really, really good. But I do think that concussion study, if you read the fine print, you'll see that the sample uh, was not indicative of everybody, but just players who showed signs. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, Mm. I, so I, again, I know that that's, you gave me a massive lesson that I, I knew nothing about. Uh, and that totally makes sense. I, to me, it's just the common sense is what, what you said. Like you play football. Yeah. That's going to increase your chance of head injury. <laughs> if you ride a horse, that's going to increase your chance of breaking your neck. If you do MMA, you might get your head kicked in. And you if might you bleed are a, lot. <laughs> a pastor, you'll have head injuries. <laughs> you will have emotional, spiritual trauma. Yes, you will. <laughs> so let, let's, a uh, few more minutes here. Let, I want to get real practical. You're a pastor of a multi-ethnic church. It's growing. It's thriving. It's from the outside. It looks like it's, you know, doing very well. What are some of the, the huge challenges as a pastor of a large church that's multi-ethnic that, that you face? Yeah, so, so, so the first thing is, is our identity always has to be rooted in the person and redemptive work of Christ. Um, if Jesus is not enough, nothing will ever be enough. And what I mean by that is this, is that um, as our friend John Calvin said, the heart is a perpetual factory for idols. Yeah. And we have to be on guard of thinking that ministry success is going to heal that ache in our heart and only Jesus can. So that's number one is my own spiritual formation to be rooted in the redemptive work of Christ through the Holy Spirit's power and to fight by the Spirit's power that Jesus is enough. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, to make sure that my marriage and my parenting is my first and foremost ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then number three is that, uh, being in ministry is filled with dis- with, uh, disillusionment, discouragement, and disappointment. What gets you down? What, what, what discourages Derwin Gray? Well, so, so say for instance, you are mentoring and pouring into staff and you're watching them grow and then all of a sudden adversity hits and they begin to self-sabotage. Mm. And man, that hurts so much to see that. Or, or, you know, um, you know, you, uh, you know, you get an email that's very critical about something that you know that's incredibly biblical, and you and you're, you're like, wait, where, 
we're, we're, we're not arguing about this. Like, are, like, are you serious right now? Yeah. Um, it's sad that when people allow politics to trump their understanding of the Bible. Yeah, I see what you did there. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, you, you know, um, also for a person like me, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an athlete. Um, I like to get after of it. And sometimes things don't happen fast enough. Yeah. And you can become disillusioned or disappointed. And the Lord is constantly reminding me through various ways that, that, that it's more about health and growth versus the speed of how something gets done. Mm -hmm. And then I would say what's, what's discouraging too, you know, even this morning is like, you'll hear evangelicals being talked about. But what the word evangelical really means is white conservative. Mm -hmm. And there are African Americans and Latinos and Asian evangelicals who are going, hey, um, talk to us too, because what's happening in one fragment is not what's happening to us. You know, years ago it was young evangelicals are leaving the church. It's like, no, young white evangelicals are leaving the church. Not Latino, not Asian, not black. And the center of evangelicalism is not America. It's South America. It's Africa. It's Asia. By 2050, one in three evangelicals will be a Nigerian woman. Yeah. (laughs) So like there's this American hubris that is like, well, my little problem is everybody's problem. And it's yeah. like, man, we have something to say. Yeah. Like, will anybody listen? I think you spanked me on Twitter on that years ago. That may have been how we met, actually. No, I think we met each other before that. But I, I made a comment about people leaving the church. And you're like, yeah, white, white people, make sure you qualify that. I'm like, dang, how, even though I've been thinking about this for years, I, I still make these mistakes of, of falling back into a certain brand of evangelicalism. When yeah, I'm talking it, about evangelicalism as a whole. Well, th- th- this is, this is uh, so, so when you live as a minority, it's like a third culture. You fit into yours mm-hmm. you, and, and, and it's like you can morph. And so because of that positioning and location and history, it makes you more uh, sensitive to the narratives of others. Mm-hmm. And so kind of one of the illustrations for people who have privilege and don't even know it is, how do you tell a fish that it's living in water? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like a catfish isn't going to go, man, this water is great, bro. Yeah. They're only going to know that water is great is when they're yanked out of it. Yeah. So a part of my role is helping people in privilege get yanked out of the water to go, wait a second, man, I can breathe on land. Like, wow, there's, there's more out here that I can learn from it. And, and so I'm actually, partnering with Northern Seminary to, uh, to lead a new program, a master's of art in multi-ethnic church leadership, because really, yeah, I've only had two non-white professors in all of my studies. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, um, I'm going to be teaching five classes that deal specifically with how do you develop multi-ethnic churches and multi-ethnic leadership and, and, and also multi-ethnic preaching. Mm-hmm. Like there's yeah. an art and science of how do you learn to communicate to various groups of people? So I, I got a, I got a white question for you here. And, and uh, 
it's just an honest question, and, and I might be way off here, but it's something that uh, us white people sometimes talk about from time to time. So when I when I was applying, I, and I had this discussion with a, a Malaysian guy just uh, last week um, on the podcast. So, because you, you made a comment about there's there, you had hardly any minority professors. And and someone could see that as like, yeah, that's that's you know white dominance, white privilege, people keeping minorities down. But in my, in my experience growing up, you know, I remember uh, wanting to be a firefighter in California, and people around me said, "You're a white male, you will never get on." I said, "What if I'm qualified? Like, I'll work hard, you know, I'll get in shape. Like, like you're not gonna, you you won't like the odds of you getting in, you're not gonna do it." So I go, right, I'm going to go into theology, and I went to master seminary because I was just the only seminary that I knew existed. And then I wanted to do a PhD and I applied for Duke, Duke PhD, or I was going to apply cost 80 bucks to get your application in. And people said, you're a white male. You're not going to, there's no way you're going to get in. <laughs> so I went in, you know, did my PhD in Scotland, got in and I was applying for jobs. I applied for 37 jobs. I got denied at 37 schools. I had publications. I had a PhD, passed my thesis, flying colors, and was applying for jobs and people were like, well, you're a, you're a white male. So, I mean, good luck trying to get a job in, in Christian academia. And then I, when I was on staff, I actually ended up getting a job at Cedarville because they fired some people and they opened up the candidacy again. And when we, so then now I'm on the other side involved in the hiring process. Here's a really conservative school, really conservative, really white. And when we're going through job applications, you know, an open position, 150 applications come in. We're like, Oh, what we would give for a minority person to <laughs> they can sign a they have to sign a doctoral statement. They got to be you know we can't have we I, 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 we can't have James go and teach at Cedarville University, but we're like we would give anything. Here's a bunch of white dudes, white straight males, conservatives saying, "Do we have to hire yet another white person?" Like we're combing through. Where is somebody? Yeah. They have to be qualified. They have to be able to sign a statement. Yeah. So and 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 I and I know there's a lot of systemic things that go into that whole discussion, but. I, I, I haven't met, and I, I mean this literally, I don't think I've met any leader in evangelicalism who is white, pub, publicist, teachers, pastor, high up pastors that I know, who give any ounce of like, let's make sure we keep the leadership really white in evangelicalism. Yeah. <laughs> like, we want the, the opposite. So what, what, am I, what am I missing or what... What can we do to reverse that? Because I, I see a lot of people, white people, that don't want the face of evangelicalism to be that white. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I've learned along the way that things you know about, talk about it, things you don't know about, learn about. And so yeah. much of what you said, I don't know about. Uh, but 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 what I will say is that oftentimes if the school is pretty much uh, white evangelical male heavy, mm-hmm. oftentimes minorities in those spaces really struggle because okay. systematically and systemically, culturally, um, it's I want you to assimilate. I'm not going to accommodate. Assimilation guess, yeah, is yeah. become like us. Accommodation is... Right bring who you are and let's mutually learn from one another. And so um, that part I can speak to. And I would say that uh, it has to begin with prayer and, 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 and fasting. 
Um, but it has to be a welcoming environment that's not just I want you to assimilate to us, but mm-hmm. I want you to bring like who you are. And who you are to shape the ethnic yeah, yeah. face of the school, not just to, assimilate to the white. Yeah, to be able to culture. shape the ethnos. Yeah. And so I think previous generations of African-Americans, I'll speak on behalf of African-Americans that I know, the previous generations are like, this is the hell that I went through. I don't know if you want to mm. go through that. Mm. And so for me, being a first generation Christian, um, you know, I did my MDiv with emphasis in apologetics under Norman Geisler. Mm. And so now at Northern under Scott McKnight, um, they are there. They are conducive to what they see happening at Transformation Church and they want to see it replicated. And so I think that's a great partnership. But at the end of the day, um, it's easier to criticize than create. And I want to create and I want to uh, be like a Jackie Robinson where it's normative that there are black pastor scholars. You know, I'm, I, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm not a, like, I'm a practitioner. Like I'm a practicer. Uh, like I don't really get off on the PhD stuff. Like I can talk that stuff, but at the end of the day, yeah. Like I'm a practitioner. And so, as you know, um, the church and the academy in the early days was married. And so I want to be able to bring the practice of a practitioner, but the mind of a scholar and be able to influence the next generation. Because, man, there are things that seminary didn't even come close to preparing me for. (laughs) I mean, I learned how to write papers in Turabian and learn some great things, but the art of pastoring yeah. happens in the midst of being in a field with the sheep, stepping in sheep patties. <laughs> One last question, Derwin. Uh, if somebody is a pastor leader of a white dominant church, and let's just assume that their surrounding area is more multicultural, you know, um, than the, than the church reflects, how, how can, what are the first steps a leader, pastor, teacher needs to take to move towards creating a multicultural type environment. Cause I, I hear, I know a lot of, I know a lot of people who have the heart. Yeah. There's just a lot of like, I don't even know how to get there. Yeah. And meanwhile, I'm trying to save this marriage and, you know, make sure people stay in the doors and, and preach a sermon. And I know for a lot of people, it's, it's, there's a, a desire there, but because it's not maybe the primary desire that they're, they just, they, they do need some help to kind of move in that direction. What would be some steps you would recommend? Yeah, I would, I would say the first thing is to get my book, The High Definition Leader, Building Multi-Ethnic Churches in a Multi-Ethnic World. Spend a good year really learning the theology. Mm. Then get your elders, your deacons, whoever influences the church. Walk them through it for a year. Pray and fast. And don't just hire minorities to do music. (laughs) You know, um, um, hire qualified minorities to preach and to teach and to give vision and to give direction. Um, You know, because it's going to take time. Um, What I'm often asked at conferences is, how did you become a multi-ethnic church? And I would say that's the wrong question. I think you need to ask why we are the way we are. Hmm. And then I take them through the theology of God's covenant with Abraham. And because of that theological gospel conviction, here are the practices we practice. And they're 
<clears throat> rooted in scripture. You have a multi-ethnic leadership team, you know, not, not tokens. Um, you have, uh, um, you know, you have cultural competency, like it's not, pe- not people that have just assimilated. Cause that, that's something most white churches have a few minorities that have, and, and I, Again, I'm not going to name any names or whatever, but they have assimilated. They're still singing kind of white songs, yes. the white beat, which is no beat. And, you know, they're not they're not they're not actually bringing ethnic difference to the, to no. the culture of the church. It, it, it is uh, it is assimilation. And often with a with a with a lot of my pastor friends, the first thing they do is they go hire a black worship leader and be, and, and, and basically want them to be the black savior. And. It's not that they want multi-ethnic church. They want a multi-colored church. <clears throat> I define multi-ethnic as in the ethnicity share in shape and power. And so a lot, you know, if a preacher is charismatic and white, they can tend to have a multi-ethnic congregation, but it's not multi-ethnic leadership. And I call that a spiritual plantation. <laughs> Seriously, there will be no talk of things that matter to minorities because it's still shaped by the majority culture. Yeah. A spiritual plantation. <laughs> Did you coin that? Yeah. I mean, that's, um, that's dark, I, man, I, but that's good. <laughs> um, I coined that phrase specifically to shock people because yeah. majority culture people aren't used to acquiescing. Everybody adjusts right. to them. And so... If you really want to know if a church is multi-ethnic, don't look at the congregation, look at the staff, look at the elders, look at who teaches, look, look at who exerts authority and power. Yeah. What about one more question similar, but so Boise, as you know, 92% Caucasian might be 6% Latino, Latinx. I think it's probably 0.9 African-American. Um, and they're all with, on the Boise State football team. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> even even our uh, we have a couple. Well, one evangelical, quote unquote, black church in town, and it's like seventy percent black. I mean, it's still it, it would be more. I mean, even the pastor says it's this. I don't really pastor a black church. I pastor a multi ethnic church. Yeah. It's not you know. Yeah. Um, so what would you, I mean? Because I, but you know, but I, I could see sense like people in Boise who aren't like overtly racist i wouldn't even say they're racist there may be some of that deep down stuff like you know if a if tons of black people start moving in their neighborhood they might get a little nervous you know but then they're not they're they're then yeah they're not overtly racist they're like you know um they they would want a multicultural congregation they'd they'd be challenged by it i think but then they look around and say like like i'm I'm not like busting white people in like that's just what the city is Is, are they kind of off the hook or or no no so 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 all ministry is local, right? And so mm-hmm. you want to reflect your community. So, so if the community is 90% white and your then, church is 90, 90% yeah, white. Then then you're going to be 90% white. And so okay. what, what you have to do then is create partnerships with the other. But okay. what I would say, particularly for pe- people in Idaho and Montana, is it's not really a black and white thing. It's Native Americans and white. Yeah, yeah. Um, it blew me away the first time I went to Montana and I was like, oh my gosh, people live on reservations. Yeah. You've got the alcoholism, you've got the drugs, you've got the suicide, you've got the mental health. 
And it's like, well, how could you not feel this way when your dignity and land has been stripped and you've been castigated to a plot of land? Like you're not even fully integrated. So what I would say is in Boise and Montana, you look towards the Native Americans, like how are we with Native Americans, but then also what do international mission trips, like have your church in Boise, like come down here to Transformation Church and Mm. experience and and serve with with us, you know? Mm. So you have to, our, our desire to go make disciples of all ethnos is not just cross the sea, it's my community as well. That's so good. Darren, I've, I've taken too much of your time. The book that he referenced again is The High Definition Leader. I've read this book. It's outstanding. What I loved about it, Darren, is that if, as you've reflected in this conversation, is it's a, it's incredibly practical, incredibly practical, but it's so theological too. I know it's not your dissertation maybe level or whatever, but it's like, this is such a perfect blend of practicality, but it's not fluff. He's not just quoting a verse here and there. He's building everything from a rich theology. So yeah, the high definition leader, I couldn't recommend. I mean, you mentioned a leadership going through that. I think that'd be a, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, having read the book, I think that'd be an outstanding, thank outstanding you. thing for thank people. Thank you. Th- thank you. Hey, um, before we get off, uh, yeah. I, I, I just want to encourage you uh, with the work that you are doing in the LGBTQ space. Thank um, you. I just, uh, we use your book of people to be loved as a resource. Hmm. Um, yeah, and course. so I want to thank you for not only your, your theological honesty, Uh, but also the love and care in which you engage um, this people group who the church has not engaged well. And so, man, you are doing um, just incredible work, and it's helped us tremendously. Um, Our church, because we're multi-ethnic, we draw a lot of LGBTQ people. Hmm. A matter of fact, I'm going to answer an email here in a moment. And I'm going to reference your work. So um, I just want to encourage you to continue leading the way in charitability and grace and truth, while at the same time uh, holding on to the beauty of the orthodox, orthodoxy of what the scriptures say, but also being honest about, you know, hey, this Old Testament passage is not saying what you're saying. You know, so, uh, man, appreciate you tremendously. Thank you so much, man. I, that seriously means a lot. And we'll, we'll be in touch, man. Cause I got a bunch of questions to follow up on that. Uh, yeah. If we had the time, I would love to explore how can we de white the evangelical conversation about faith, sexuality, and gender. Oh. And, and I've been the last year have been focused hard on trying to do that. And man, it's not no, easy. It's not. That's... There's an intersection of race and Yes, it and, is, and and my and and the minority experience on various levels, and it's it's I, I'm try, still trying to wrap my head around it, so I, I'm going to need your help on that. Yeah, yeah, man, we'll uh, we'll have to chop it up on that again, man. Hey, you sure. have a wonderful day. Enjoy uh, those beautiful sure. mountains in Boise. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. Take care. <laughs>